Hey fam, this is your host, Amber Preston, and this is Family Drama. Okay. Hi, mom. (laughs) Hi. Before we begin, I wanted to take a moment to extend our immense gratitude for everyone supporting the show by listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the podcast. We have received an overwhelming amount of positive feedback, and we are truly grateful for everybody's continued support. And with that, let's jump in to some of the questions some of our listeners have sent in. Okay, so question one. What happened with Chala and Chrissy? Are they still in the family's life? Are they still in your life, Mom? Not really. As far as I know, Chala is still living in the Columbus area. I maintained contact with her up until just a few years ago. She called me during school one day and was very upset about a scam situation she had gotten herself into, and she'd lost a couple thousand dollars. And I told her that I would call her back when I didn't have students in the room. But in the meantime, before I could get to call her back, she crafted some very nasty texts and emails to me. And this was not uncommon in our relationship. If I didn't just jump and try to save her, fix the situation, or listen to her complaints, she just would get very upset with me and then start blaming me. And this was just during a time, though, that you were going through your sexual assault case trial. And I would go to the hearings and I would be watching Sam Szymanski try to slaughter your testimony. And then I'd go back to school and I would teach in the afternoon. It was a very crazy, very stressful time for me. And I felt like Chala just wanted me to drop everything and again, deal with her crazy. So that was a breaking point for me. And I just ended up blocking her. And I really haven't spoke with her since. I'll occasionally check in with Miranda, her daughter, and see if, you know, if she's alive, if she got through COVID or anything. And I do hope she's doing okay. But for for my own well-being, I just needed to to break the relationship. I don't know if I'll go back to that at some point just to check on her and see how she is, but I'm just not ready for that right now. And it's very hard for me to have those boundaries with family, but I'm getting better at that. Proud of you. Yep. Thanks. (laughs) It's easier too when they die. (laughs) (laughs) That got dark really fast. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) But you know, yeah, it was very hard for for me to recognize really good boundaries. Anyway, (laughs) as for Chrissy, I have not seen her for a few years and she has not contacted me since her oldest boy's graduation. She knows where I am, though, and if she wants to reach out, but the last number I had for her no longer works. And she and Chala tried to have a relationship, a mother-daughter relationship, when she first returned to Ohio and over the course of the last several years. But the last time I knew that they were together, they ended up in a fist fight, and Chala left her beside the road somewhere in North Carolina. (laughs) So don't think that one's working out well yet, but... Maybe eventually they'll they'll work things out, but it doesn't matter that there's no blood right. between us. There's still 
part of the family past and, and the trauma and, bonds, right? That and you guys have, yeah. And so, you know, I care, but I'm not going to be consumed, right? Absolutely. I did reach out to Chrissy just over Facebook Messenger, just to see if she had listened to the podcast. And the last time I talked to her, she hadn't listened to it, and. I hope she does listen to it one day. And I would honestly, I would love to have her on here and get her story, but that might be a boundary for her to want to sever all ties with the family as well. And that's her right. Sure. Okay. Next question. Did you ever fall back into your trauma responses as an adult? Was there a point as details and the aftermath of Amber's sexual assault unfolded that was triggering for you? How did you handle that as both a mom and a young rape victim? Well, that was crazy. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot in that question. Yeah. I think 99% of all people fall back into trauma responses to some degree, or especially when they're faced with an unexpected trigger. The important thing is to become familiar with how to deal with a response so that you're not paralyzed by it or react as though you're out of control. Naturally, I had very strong internal reactions when you told me about your assault and extraordinarily mixed emotions throughout the entire process. I mean, I remember sitting at the top of the steps going into the basement when you were telling me all about this. And of course, you know, my mind was totally listening to you and engaged, but knowing full well, I know exactly what you're going through, but I didn't feel at liberty to say, oh, I get exactly what you mean because this happened to me too. It was just that it wasn't about me. It was about listening to my daughter explain exactly what went down and how we were going to deal with this and what was necessary for you Mm -hmm. to do. This is a different time and different generation, certainly different circumstances, but I knew that you would live with this situation for the rest of your life because it just never goes away. And I found that your strength to report and confront this in the courts, I found that strength remarkable because the way victims are treated is the reason why most assaults go unreported. You had the courage to keep fighting throughout this. Yes, it did trigger for me some of those responses, but I also knew that this was the thing you had to deal with. I wasn't sure I could even really help you deal with it by talking about it, my own response, because it really wasn't just necessary. It was more important that you were able to manage the court systems, screwed up as it was at the beginning, in your whole reporting process, and go through the actual court system to confront him. Kyle in this manner. And then also knowing that Grace was, you know, part of our lives too. And how do we help her to identify with your feelings and sadness and frustrations and devastation over this, you know, as young as she was too. And I think an interesting tidbit is I found out about your sexual assault during this podcast. I had no idea what had happened to you. So Although people didn't hear my reaction because we cut out (laughs) my sobs, but people have asked me, oh my gosh, like how did your mom deal with 
you going through all of this? And did you know what had happened to her? And I didn't know. And people who know my story and how I went to the, you know, the police station by myself, people have asked, well, why didn't your mom go with you? If she had gone through this, people assume that your reaction would be a certain way. And I always have to remind them, I needed her to be with Grace. That was my priority. Because as a single mom, you're always my next person helping me out with Grace. You're my dad. And my priority was that Grace was comfortable and taken care of so I could go and do that. Right. Right. I I mean, I said, you know, do you want me to go with you? Right. And you said, no, no I need you to stay here with, with Grace. Grace. Um, exactly. Make sure, she, you know. She's taken care of. Right. And people just don't know how people are going to react in certain situations right. until you're put in that situation. Right. I would have gone with you to Oh, I know. Everything. And you ended up bringing all of the clothes that needed collected by evidence and you did come to the hospital. And I think back on it and... I don't know if you telling me your story would have given me comfort at the time, or I don't know if it would have made it worse. It's not important. It, and it, it's not it's, important. No, you're in such, people are so traumatized by what is happening. It is hard enough to process the information, right? the memory of what has happened, although it might be very vivid. It is hard enough to process. You don't need another layer right. of crazy right. <laughs> into that. I know that that's not psychologically healthy for you either right. or for anyone mm -hmm. is to say, oh, yeah, well, I went through that too. It's pointless. And I know that as a mom. I know that as a human, you right. know, it's concentrating on uh, what you're going through. And in trauma, when trauma distracts the memory and destroys parts of the memory, you've got to be able to tell the people what happened. So you don't need all of that other stuff cluttering sure. your mind or, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, so it's, it just wasn't important. And so I hope our audience understands it. It's not that I was cold and calculating, didn't, you know, right. wasn't there for you. I, I was oh God, there right. for you because I needed to be there for grace, right. and that which was is both of our priorities, yeah. you know, um, making sure this little girl is, you know, right. is taken care of. So it was equally disturbing though to watch Sam Szymanski yeah. knowing full well in my it, that I said nothing to anyone about who this man was in my life prior right. to him slaughtering you on the stand. I know. It's like oh if he only knew mm -hmm. who was sitting here in his courtroom and how he messed over my brother and messed his life up so horribly. Right. You know and now right. he, he's slaughtering my daughter. You know, there's where anger occurs. There's where hate occurs, yeah. which is one of the other questions later. I hate not the people, but the circumstances, mm -hmm. the behaviors, the reactions. Uh, I hate that. Yeah. And I hated the fact that Shemansky was up there doing that. And, and I had this other history with him and I couldn't say anything to anybody because I didn't want to risk anything right. happening to this case. Exactly. At all. And Ugh. of course, you know, that, that could be just my own paranoia, but moving on out of that. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> God, if I never have to talk about Sam Shemansky again, I'd be so happy. I would like to confront him someday. Honestly, I would like to just go to his office and say, Sam. 
What were you thinking? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sam, really? Right. In regards to the Kyle case, he was hired to do a job and yeah. he did it. And Yeah, I know. I, see, our logical states of mind are like that. Right. But when you watch somebody in that generation talk about, well, let's just forget that she's a cancer survivor and a victim of every, she's, you know, like going oh, through yeah. that. And it's just like, I'm going to hate this person and I, I'm not going to waste any time. So I'm going to become indifferent. Speaking of hate. Question three. Question three. <laughs> you seem to have been able to root yourself in compassion and understanding to have maintained relationships with some of your family members. Is there anyone that you truly hated? Have you let go or do you still carry that with you? You know, that's, I have been asked that a lot, mostly about, did you hate Chalmer? And of course, growing up, yes, I hated him. Everything he did, everything he stood for. And I wanted him out of our lives so much so I was, you know, disappointed when Billy actually didn't kill him, yeah. <laughs> if we all remember that. Yes. You know, and let's be honest. You know, I was a child at, at the time. And as I got older, though, and he was out of my life, I began to develop a moral psychology, so to speak, because there has to be a reason he was such a horrible person. I mean, I'm not looking to excuse his behavior. Never, ever. But like with Billy, something caused him to become who we became by all appearances, Billy was a rapist and likely a murderer. Nothing changes those facts. Understanding why he became a rapist and developed dissociative identity allows me to hold that compassion for him at the same time hating the behaviors. I realize if I can do this in this case, then I should at least entertain the idea of trying to understand why Chalmer was like he was why my mom was like she was, but I draw a line at like Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was just, you yeah. know, no line, you know, yeah. I was just uh -huh. like, mm -mm. and really the bottom line is, you know, I hated Chalmer for a lot of years, but hate takes energy. Yes. Indifference does not. Right. And so moving toward, I don't give two shits or I have no shits left to give. Yeah is a better place for me to spend <laughs> what energy I have. You right. know, obviously, I don't like to hate any person, but it's totally okay to hate what they do. Yeah. But I don't want to spend any time of my own time on that. It's not a given, though. It's a process. It's a lifelong process because I still feel anger and bone-deep sadness when I think about the past. But I've learned not to wallow in those feelings or, or let them define who I am. Who did society fail the most? You, Billy, Chala, or your mom? Oh, <laughs> well, I, I believe the system certainly failed Billy. I think we can trace how the system failed Billy. The patriarchal society of mom's generation and even my generation certainly failed to protect women and children from domestic violence. And we've improved somewhat by providing resources and education and establishing laws, but it certainly isn't enough. Society fails anytime it doesn't protect people's rights. You know, anytime 
the weak are not protected, society fails them. Chala didn't get the help she needed either. The problem is, even as we learn more, we're still not doing it right. There are some states whose laws still protect the perpetrator more than the woman. Like in Oklahoma, if a woman is not able to protect her child from a male perpetrator or anybody that abuses them, the woman often spends more time behind bars than the perpetrator. No way. Yes way. It's, it's now just coming out in our society in some states where the, the mothers are suffering more time because they failed, quote unquote, to provide protection for their abused children, even if they were also abused. Wow. But if there's not facilities to go to or laws that protect women, they have to actually have tried something. Well, that actual trying can result in your death. Exactly. So uh, our laws aren't good enough yet. No. And they're not getting any better, actually. I think we're taking several steps back, which is very unfortunate. Okay. How young were you when you knew you wanted to have kids? Why do you think you wanted to be a mom when you had such horrible parental examples? Well, I think people in my generation and maybe probably people even now, our society kind of has created the situation where you grow up, you go to college, you get married, you have a start a family. Yep. So it wasn't like I never had the idea that I don't want to have kids because I'm going to be such a horrible parent. I also knew that I learned from their horrible mistakes how not to parent, which sounds really weird, but then again, I had to also go learn, you know, what are the appropriate ways to raise children because I clearly didn't have good role models in that. But I never considered not having children. I I always thought, well, I will grow up, I will get married probably and raise kids and, you know, do the normal societal thing. Right. I mean... I find it remarkable for those people who decide, oh, I, I never want to have children. I think our society looks at that and is like, wow, is that is there something wrong with you? Right. But that's not true. No. That's not true. We're just so programmed to this is what we do. So, I mean, my generation went to college specifically to find a husband. Right. You know, I was still in the 60s, 70s women's movement where, you know, where people were like, no, I don't have to get married. I don't have to take your name. I don't have to, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but I was still in the mindset of, no, I'm going to get married and start a family, have a career, but also I can do it all. I was also brainwashed with, I have to do it all and I have to be perfect about it, which is really stupid as well. So I have always thought I would have kids. Yes. I was a stay-at-home mom. I I saw one of the other questions that talk about being a stay-at-home mom And what was that like for me? Because I never wanted to be dependent on a man. Mm. That was a very hard decision for me because I felt like I was giving up my career and couldn't do it all then. So I was going to be less than. And so I had to rearrange my thinking of, no, I'm, I'm giving my best time to my kids. I want to raise my kids. I don't want somebody else raising my kids. There's nothing wrong with daycare. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, that decision was I would prefer to have those first five to six years with my children because 
the developmentally that time is so incredibly important. Right. And I'm such a control freak. I want to control over that. <laughs> but it, it, at the same time, honestly, I made a deal with God and I said, you know, if I give up my career, you have to help me reestablish it because this is really hard for me to depend on Paul and be financially dependent. But I also knew in the back of my mind, I have my degree. I can always go teach somewhere. Right. And and so I, I felt like I really wasn't that as dependent on God as I was. I can still do this. If you screw me over and things get really awful and this ends in divorce, then I can still manage it and not have to you know, go back to work. I struggled with the decision, but it was the right decision for me mm-hmm. to be able to stay at home for those years till you were all in school. And then I could go back and resume my career. And putting, I feel, putting that time into you guys personally was fulfilling for me. But my desire was for you to become the the best humans you could be. And I felt like I I needed to to have those interactions with you in order for that to to happen, which might be arrogant, but you know, it it's that was my job, that was my responsibility, and and I felt pretty strongly about that personally. Yeah, it's not for everybody. It was no. there were days it was hard. In fact, in my neighborhood, I was the only stay at home mom. Right, it was very lonely in those in the late eighties because everybody else was still out there working full-time jobs and coming home and having an hour and a half with their kids. And I saw their struggle with that too. It's very hard. So it's a hard situation and hard decisions to make for women. Right. Both are hard. Yeah. Staying at home with kids is hard. Working and raising kids is hard. You just got to choose your hard. Choose your hard. Yeah. And so, and that's like that with everything. Yeah. You know, marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. Make your hard. Choose your hard. And I think that's uh, that's good, good and wise advice because life yep. is just not easy. It's not. All right. So let's talk about the crowded room, <laughs> the even more crowded room. Yes. The new the, Apple TV Plus series. The room that gets more crowded <laughs> by the day. So many people. <laughs> right. Very people Yes. Okay. From what I understand, <laughs> this is not the same crowded room based on Jim Cameron's writing. I have Jim Cameron's The Crowded Room. I have a copy of that script. This apparently is nothing like that, although it does have the same title. To be honest, I'm very disappointed in hearing the direction the writers, particularly Goldsman, is taking this series. The premise of this anthology is a series that is to dive into the true tales of people who have, quote, struggled and learned to successfully live with mental illness, unquote. Well, (laughs) that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, Tom Holland is playing this character called Danny Sullivan that is loosely based on Billy. And the only thing I have read so far is that the character has DID or has multiple personalities. This is all fabricated. When I heard about the series, I wrote to Goldsman and the Milchins and New Regency to invite them to contact me. I called New Regency repeatedly, 
And when Mr. DiCaprio said that he wanted to make the movie right after Billy died, all I got when I called New Regency was a rude response from his lackey who never even bothered to take my information. None of the people involved with this have contacted me about the reality of the story. And really, without reading the second book and listening to what really happened to him after the minds of Billy Milligan, you would not know about the abuse of the system. Now, while Apple TV Plus may be doing this to make some type of statement, I just, I don't personally get it. While people might find this entertaining, this version entertaining, it's already full of falsehoods on the very premise of the show. My fear is that it will do more damage than good. Mental illness already has enough stigma. And isn't it pathetic that famous people continue to exploit patients like this for some type of monetary gain or entertainment value? It just, it's just very disappointing. And it's sad. And it's disgusting. I mean... Here we have a mental patient who sold his rights, and now is this even that same story? No, it's not. And what's sad is there is a story there, an incredible story, not just Billy's story, but integrating your story into it. It could have been something pretty spectacular, but... It's just, it's sad on so many levels. And, <laughs> you know, I wish those proceeds would go towards paying off his treatment to the state of Ohio. Well, I, on that, I don't think he should be paying the state of Ohio. Well, that wasn't same. treatment. No. But, but what my intention is, if I sell his paintings or if, or for whatever, the money that... If there is ever any money that comes from this, I like to donate to causes like on our sleeves at Children's Hospital. Right. I truly don't want to exploit him either. That's why this story is my story. That's right. <laughs> I just happen to be very much related to him, so we're intertwined. But I think the exploitation of any person for any reason is wrong. Right. But to exploit the vulnerable is entirely soulless. <laughs> so, yep. Good luck with that everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, I will watch it. Oh, I will, I will too. I will be judging. I me too. But I I wish they would I wish they would just ask me. I would have right. I would have done anything to to help them get this story right. Yeah. Not just sensational. It's already sensational it by is. itself. It doesn't need any extra flair. No. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, it's unbelievable by itself. So it is Hollywood. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Hollywood. Shall we talk about Dewan Cox? <laughs> yes, I did want to mention in, in this bonus episode quite a unique situation that came out of the documentary. I got a call. Well, actually, I got a message, a friend message that a Dewan Cox wanted to friend me uh, on, message Facebook. on Facebook. Right. And of course, I'm thinking, 
Dewan Cox is the person, if if our audience knows the documentary or or even if they don't, Dewan Cox is the first possible person that my brother might have killed. There's no body, there's no trace of that, and there's seems to be some mix-up in some of the documentation that I'll get to in just a moment. So I wasn't sure who this Dewan Cox was, but in my mind, I'm thinking perhaps this is just a family member. So I didn't respond because <laughs> I right. don't I don't know what you, you know. You don't know what's I, real or what's not. I don't I don't respond to any front requests because I because I was teaching. So I just I'm not on that very often. Well then I got a, an actual message and I read through it and Dewan said that he was the son of Dewan, <laughs> Dewan Sr., who had gone missing back in the nineteen seventies. And he was a child. He was five years old when his father went missing. Back uh, in, let's just... In 1979. Cl- yeah, clarify for our right. audience, where, where in Ohio yes, did he go missing? Yes, he went missing in Logan, Ohio. Okay. This is while Billy was at Athens. At, he was at Athens. He was under the supervision of Dr. Call at the Athens Mental Health Center, and he was allowed to come to our house for visits and in Logan, in Logan, Ohio. And so sometimes... I was in college at the time, and so Billy would come for the weekends, and we would go to the movies or something like that. And he somehow met Dewan Cox. Anyway, Dewan Cox went missing. Long story short, Dewan Sr.'s mother that went missing came to visit me, asked me, do you know where my son is? He's been missing. This was in August of 1979, and he'd been missing for a while. And no, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Well, then later in November, uh, Billy was taken to Lima. So no body, no fa- nothing was found. His car was found uh, abandoned in Logan. So anyway, Dewan Jr., who's now in his 40s, you know, asked me, and I said, let's FaceTime. I didn't want to meet personally because I wasn't sure, you know, but I, I did want to, I wanted to see this person face to face because in my heart and mind, I had something. And I wanted to see where he was coming from. So and Dewan, just to clarify, sent you a message on Facebook. On Facebook. And he wanted to meet with you. Dewan Jr. Yes. yes. the junior. And he wanted to meet with me. So I agreed to meet with him on FaceTime so that we could talk. He lived currently in Nevada, in the Las Vegas area. So we talked one Sunday in June. It seems that some of his friends had seen the documentary called him and said, oh my God, they're talking about your dad, Dewan Sr., about missing and that this Billy Milligan might have been involved with this. And that's the first Dewan Jr. had ever heard anything about my brother. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so as we got on FaceTime, I said, tell me what you know, Mm -hmm. and then I'll tell you what what I I know know and think. Because Brees, the co-producer of the Netflix documentary, had done his due diligence and tried to find the family, tried to find Dewan's ex-wife and, and everything. So Dewan Jr. tells me that his dad had gotten involved. He was in the service in the Air Force Reserves and went missing on a particular weekend when he was away at the Air Force Reserves. His mom had talked to him at lunch that afternoon and she had not seen nor heard from him since that day in August. And that they knew that Dewan Sr. had gotten involved with selling marijuana and some drugs. 
So eventually they told the boys, Dewan was five and he had a one-year-old brother at the time as they grew up, that dad abandoned them. That oh, he had, wow. had gotten involved in drugs and he just took the money and ran and they never heard from him. They had married early. It was a bit of a rough marriage. You know, they were in their young, they were in their 20s, their right. young 20s at the time. And so Dewan grew up with the idea that his father abandoned him all of his life. So I told Dewan, well, my brother did apparently know him because your grandmother came down to talk with me to find where he might be. And he also, again, told me that they had never reported him missing because he had been involved with all this, this drug scheme. Oh, wow. And I said, I, I believe he was reported missing. I have a document. I have a missing persons report. He was reported missing. It's redacted and it's from microfiche. <laughs> so mm. it's really, it's I really. I why it's redacted. Probably because when Brees asked for the information, oh, gotcha. they wanted to protect where the family was living at the time. Oh, okay. So, and they just lived across the street from each other. Mother and father, Dewan and Miss, had, had grown up together, lived across the street from each other. In fact, Dewan's grandmother still lives in the house from all of those years ago. Anyway, I told him that I would send him that, and I hope to God that didn't cause problems. But on the report, it says recovered. And so Brees and the producers were told from the court system that Dewan had been recovered, that he had been found. And so what happened was that when Billy was taken to Lima and he was seen after Billy was taken to Lima, that meant that Billy could not have killed Dewan. But that is not true because when Brees talked to Dewan's mom, Dewan Sr.'s wife, she said, no, we had not seen him since August. Oh. So the possibility, the highest probability really, is that Billy did kill Dewan. Something that I suspected when he went missing and when I expressed my concern to the doctors, they said, that's not consistent with his behavior. And I'm thinking in my mind, there's always a first time. Exactly. When push comes to shove, Uh you know. And I also told Dewan Jr., I said, this is in the 70s. A black guy from Columbus comes down to Appalachia and goes missing. No one's going to care. And I said, and I'm really sorry, but that is that, that is was the, the reality of the time at, at the time. And there's so many hollers back through there, through Hocking Hills and oh my gosh, everything yeah. else that his body would, would never be found. Right. And I said, I believe, Dewan, that my brother did kill your father. And his response was incredible. He said to me, and I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget this. He said, that is such a a blessing to hear you say that because all my life I have felt abandoned by my father that he didn't love me and that's not true at all and I said I I hope and I said you never string these words together and I said I hope for your sake that my brother did kill your father so that you can move on and he told me that his grandmother 
has never moved from the house, has never broken her landline, stopped her landline, even though she has a cell phone, because she's waited all of her life oh, God. for her son to come home. I'm hoping this is able to give them some type of closure. I am so sorry, of course, that my brother would have done something like this. Right. Again, horrible behaviors. Yeah. Hateful, horrible behaviors. And I would love to have him come on and, and, and yeah. have this conversation between us, especially if he's had the opportunity to heal from this. And so that that is a remarkable thing that Absolutely. has come out of talking about mental illness and mental and and the the situation with the possible deaths right you know? cuz then there's also Michael Madden right and know? every time they find a body in Lake Mead I'm thinking okay I know I just wait I same I same I I wait and it's like okay who is it and I keep watching the feed to see have they identified have they cuz I don't know if it's Lake Mead I don't know I don't know where but right. somewhere out there, yeah. Michael Madden's body is likely to be. Yeah. And, as they, and I'm thinking it, it would give that family, although his parents have passed, it would at least give them some type of closure too. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. because I think everybody, I think everybody kind of understands that that's probably what went down. Yeah. So, and I, I have great regret and I have a, a great deal of compassion for the family members who are the victims of my brother's victims. Yeah. So on that note, thank you everybody for writing in and asking these amazing questions. And I want to let you guys know that we are actively looking for a single guest or multiple guests for season two. We've worked hard to build a space for people to have their opportunity to share their stories kept secret. And we want to continue this. So if you are interested or you know somebody who is interested in being a part of this, please reach out. All of our contact information is and will be in the show notes. And we look forward to starting on season two. Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> All right. Bye, fam. Bye.